0: This week, I talk with Havoc Journal owner Charlie Faint about all things military intelligence related, about the misconceptions about military intelligence, about what traits should you have if you're in military intelligence, about military intelligence versus operations, about officer versus enlisted experience, uh, all the different nuances that go along with any discussion about military intelligence. It is a conversation born of necessity because, A, Charlie and I have been talking about this for a while, that we should really have an episode just dedicated to intelligence stuff. And then uh, it worked out that way this week because we were hit with a barrage of booking and technical related issues. So uh, it just all came together in time. I think it's a really fun discussion. I really enjoyed it. It's a little tricky because obviously when you're talking about intelligence-related subjects, you, there's there's pretty firm tear lines about what you can and can't talk about. And I think Charlie and I did a pretty good job of staying within our left and right limits. And uh, hopefully to those of you that have no familiarity with it, it makes enough sense You might have to check the show notes a lot to get some clarifications on some of the acronyms that we throw out there. And I apologize. I tried to define the acronyms in advance and uh, it just got ahead of me. So we ended up saying them and I'll try to catch them all up in the show notes. Anyway, I think you guys will really enjoy it. I think it'll give you a window into a very particular aspect of the military experience. And I can't wait for you guys to listen to it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is The Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this episode of the Weekly Havoc, where we engage in a roundtable discussion with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Try to make a little order out of chaos. Charlie Faint is an active duty Army intelligence officer. He is the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC, seven deployments in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea, three master's degrees, currently a PhD candidate, Executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, owner of the Havoc Journal, and one third of our expected guest load for today. But he is here and he's the only one that made it through this selection process. Hi,
1: Charlie. Hey, Chris. So glad to be back. And it, yeah, I guess uh, the audience has got to muddle through with me today. <laughs> well, me too. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I need to diversify
0: so people don't get sick of me. Um, well, listen, so as you and I talked about when we. Uh, realize we're running into more mishaps and booking issues than we could deal with this weekend. Um, I wanted to talk, since you have two, uh, well, one former intelligence soldier and one current intelligence soldier, um, I thought it would be good for us to actually get into, and we, I know we've talked about this before, but really get into a waist deep into the military intelligence field as much as we can. Obviously, when it comes to intelligence issues, there's a lot of red lines that we have to adhere to and um we can't really uh go necessarily as in depth as we'd like but we'll be we'll be as thorough as we can be um i'm i'm glibly titling this episode can the military have intelligence and i'm doing that because i think there is a love-hate relationship with the military and its intelligence branches so let's talk about that maybe to start with charlie um in your experience what is the biggest misconception that you've seen between the military and its intelligence folks
1: yeah the the biggest thing for me as a career intel officer has been kind of the perception that everything's either an operational success or an intel failure so Intel supports operations, Intel drives operations, and operations directs intelligence. So there's there's been a a constant struggle and tension between those two. We exist to support the commander, decision maker at whatever level that is, in or out of uniform. But it seems like the Intel... Structure gets blamed for a lot of operational failures. Again, always either operational successes or Intel failures It's never the other way around. And to some degree, that's good, but that's one of the big misperceptions about it. Sometimes Intel can do everything right and Ops still screws it up, but often Ops does a lot of things right and Intel doesn't support it in the way that they should. So I think that's the biggest one, Chris, but also that what we do, as you know, from your extensive experience in the Intel community, much of what we do is unsexy. Everyone joins military intelligence thinking they're going to be James Bond. They're going to be running human sources and things like that. And they don't realize the training and the analysis and the sitting behind a desk that goes into it in order to be successful. So I think those are the two big, the biggest ones that I want to bring up right off the bat, Chris.
0: Yeah. um, It's interesting as you're saying that I was thinking about and this is something we can probably mine a little bit more in depth uh, the differences between an officer's experience and the enlisted experience in MI um, because, it, because you're, I, I think a hundred percent right on identifying probably the major misconception about military intelligence. But that's, that also strikes me. That's really from a, uh, you know, an operational level uh, from a strategic level, even um, it's funny on the day to day, You know, when I phrased that question and heard myself asking that question, I was thinking of of kind of day to day or or atmospheric kind of concerns that I see just interpersonally between soldiers, or um, uh, you know, especially uh, when you're attached to certain units and you fall in on them, you just kind of socially understand there's there's some misconceptions that might be there, um, which almost. Which it was for me anyway, and this maybe is a character flaw, but for me, that was my first uh, knee jerk response when I think of misconceptions about MI as having to prove that I belong in the room or or something like that. Mm. Um, But it's weird. Uh, You know, I do think you're right. I think MI is, um, I think, both cooler and more boring than you think it should be. You know, there's times where, and and I think it's interesting that it, I know in the schoolhouses, they really push that you are not James Bond, you are not going to be doing James Bond stuff. Get rid of that illusion, get rid of that delusion, and um, realize that most of your work is going to be behind a computer, no matter what aspect of intelligence you're in. Um, and that's cool, and that's absolutely true, and people go along with that. And then at some point, you find yourself doing something. That is out of a movie, and you go, wow, this is actually really cool. And I'll never be able to tell anybody about this, but this actually really is dope. And then you go, yeah, but then I do have to do 12 hours sitting behind a computer because of that. So let me capture it all. And I understand the risk management aspect of the military to really front load the unsexy part of things because that is the vast majority of your work. But then there can be really sexy parts. which which is interesting because it isn't. I um, say it's it's both cooler and much more boring than you think it would be, and it it definitely is not James Bond. But there can be things that happen that are very very cool, and you're like, wow, that I never would have anticipated that. Does that kind of make sense where I'm going with that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And while you were saying that, Chris, it made me think of the the more elite the organization, the better resource they are, the better the intel can be. And I think when that happens, you get this, this virtuous cycle going of, hey, we have good intel people. They do good work. I want to use them more compared to other units where the intel folks either aren't as good or they don't have the resources to support the operational mission. So they, they don't do a good job. So they, over time, they get asked to do fewer and fewer things. And then suddenly you find yourselves hanging out, uh, handing out maps and doing security container inspections instead of driving operations get after the enemy. So yeah, I think you're you're dead on, Chris.
0: You know, it, I I also it, it's very strange to me. I, we've talked about this before, Charlie, about how uh, you know everybody is is essentially uh augmentee at JSOC. You know, <laughs> and then you look around, and you go, wow, no nobody, nobody's actually uh, properly here on the on the support side uh, in in many respects. And I I do see that in the MI community that there is a real hierarchy about which units you support in my experience and I want to bounce this off you because again i'm I'm only looking this through through my little you know keyhole but I didn't see a huge difference in the skill level between conventional and soft and even tier one um, intelligence folks I saw certain other I, I saw other aspects which i can maybe get into. In in the next after I let you talk, but I, I I saw other things that were different between those the collectors or the intelligence folks, but I didn't see um I didn't see expertise or profe- well professionalism is kind of a tough one I didn't see the skill set necessarily being a lot better, uh, but you, but you did I think right
1: yeah but I I agree with you especially at the lower levels. So at mm. the entry-level positions or even the, the junior CO junior officers, they're largely interchangeable. I think the difference that you start seeing is when you have the cadre model and these elite units at the middle management and upper management levels, I think there's a distinct mm. difference on the intel yes. side between them. So you got the collectors going out there, a, a collector on their first assignment, and this unit is probably going to be just as good as this other unit. But over time, in that more elite unit, they do the same thing to get a lot more reps, they have a lot more resources, they get a lot more training, they're going to start doing a lot better. So for me, yeah. So for for my entry level guys in these units, they were largely interchangeable with the good entry level members from the conventional units. Um but over time, my my mid grade senior NCOs, my field grade officers, they're noticeably different. They're noticeably better in terms of what they can do and their ability to thrive in chaos and their ability to manage chaos, which is largely what we were dealing with downrange on a daily basis. That was a distinct difference in their favor, Chris. Mm,
0: interesting. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. What did you th- did you see a difference, Charlie, between um, your folks? In kinetic situations versus non-kinetic situations, if you're in a semi-permissive environment uh, versus, say, an Iraq or Afghanistan, did you notice um, a difference in the capabilities? Did you go, boy, we're not – especially if you're in more elite units, did you notice that there was maybe a degradation in their capabilities because they were no longer in a non-permissive kinetic environment and instead they were dealing with a bit more malleable – um, environment or did you hmm. not see that at all?
1: So I didn't see it, but only because that's not what my guys were doing. Mm-hmm. So all of my experiences and the various task forces were in Iraq and Afghanistan and we were we we're getting after it in, I mean, pretty permissive situations. We had complete air superiority. We had safe fobs to go back to when they were done. So there was that that less permissive More covert stuff going on, but I I didn't have anything to do with it, Chris. That wasn't my mission.
0: Got you. Interesting. Okay. Um. Yeah, I wanted to throw that out there because that um, I I know when I was working. Let me let me kind of define terms here a little bit, um, for everyone listening. When I talk about non-permissive environments, generally I'm talking about combat situations, um, your Iraqs, your AfghaniStan's, things like that, where you can't just simply walk out the door and go do things. Uh, you have your semi-permissive environments where people, uh, specifically American soldiers, can go out and do things. There is the threat of violence, and you have to take a lot of precautions. But you can walk the streets. You can interact with the locals um, without you know, having an infantry company with you. Um, and then you have your uh, fully permissive environments, where which is like you know, Western Europe um, or places like that. So um, just to kind of level set there what what I saw was that um my most enjoyable work, I think it's safe to say we're in the semi-permissive environments i I, I thought um non-permissive environments, uh, the highly kinetic combat zones um, has a is can be interesting and and certainly is in incredibly important work uh, for me, just the what was personally most gratifying was the semi-permissive and I think it just depends on what the strengths of each person are and what they tend to gravitate towards. Uh, and so I I think it's interesting to note where certain intelligence folks end up shining. And I think one of my biggest gripes, and I don't want to make this an entire hour of bitching and moaning, but um but I will throw this at her. I think one of the biggest gripes in the MI field that I see um is the lack of talent management that there's – in the Army in general, you have to be – it has to be a numbers game and I understand that. That You're going to have 11 Bravos. You're going to have your infantrymen. You're going to have your artillerymen. You're going to have your cav guys. You, you, you've got people and generally they need to be interchangeable parts. And you need them to be interchangeable parts in MI as well. The problem is almost by its nature, MI cannot be interchangeable parts because it is such a personality-based business. And you're not dealing with widgets. You're not dealing with a physical um task. You're not dealing with physical objects where everybody is just a different type of aluminum siding. It's it's personality based. And as a result, talent management's incredibly important. And I think um at the I, I don't wonder what that's like at the officer levels, or if you even are are, are picking up what I'm laying down, Charlie. That was my experience anyway.
1: Yeah, that's a persistent critique, not only the MI branch, but the Army in general. And I'm not going to criticize talent management in the Army because I I tried to come up with a better solution over the years because it's a source of great frustration for me as well. But I don't have one. So I'm not going to say that it sucks because I don't like doing that without having a good solution. I don't have one. But I think the Army has gotten better over time, at least in my career. I've been in 27 years now, so there's been a lot of changes. I remember when I first. Joined the Intel Corps, I came in through the branch detail program. So I was an infantry officer for four years and then transitioned to MI. Everyone had to be a company commander in order to get promoted to major. And some people, as you know, Chris, have no business being company commanders, but they could be great battalion S2s. Everyone thinks that a, a, a great Intel officer can do both. That's not the case. So you have people who are great S2s, probably have no business being in charge of a company, and great commanders who aren't the best. S2s. So the army did, in my opinion, a, a great thing and made those paths equally valid to get get promoted to major, get promoted up the, the field grade ranks. So I do think it I do think we could do better maybe somehow. I don't know how we would do it, but matching up the skills with abilities and personalities, like you said, because in my branch is so big and there's so many different things we've got going on. Maybe you don't make this person who's, who's been strat Intel their whole life, a a, a brigade combat team S2. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe you try to steer them somewhere else at the same time, though, a lot of these jobs are dangerous, either physically or professionally. Like I don't want to be a brigade S2 that, that job's hard. You can get fired doing that. Uh, I'd rather be back in, in JSOC doing something on that side, but so you don't want to the same people to get shafted with all the tough jobs, but Sometimes in the interest of the organization, someone's got to to pay the price on that. So I don't know how we get after it. But yeah, Chris, that's a problem on the officer side too.
0: Yeah, and and I think you're right. I'm not sure there's a systemic fix. I, I think it's, it's a case-by-case case fix. It's, it's making sure that the decision makers have the capability and are think, actively thinking um, about the individualism of their soldiers underneath them. And going well, who who really is the best tool for this job? And it's sometimes hard to know if you're dealing with a company of of intelligence folks. You know, it's not; it's a little tough to know them individually to the point that you can really handpick who should go to what assignment. But um, I certainly think downrange, when you're, you know, you can assess people relatively quickly. And I think, in my experience, the people that worked well that or that i enjoyed working for and with were the ones that really thought about talent management versus the ones who simply came in and said hey you're a soldier in the u.s army go execute and it's like well right but you're asking the wrong person to do that gig and and you're not going to get the results you want um so in my experience I, i that was the best i could come up with which is a bit of a cop out but i thought at least um you know, if it's some way of conditioning leadership's mind mindsets to think about um, the individuals, especially in that job field, versus others.
1: Yeah, and one of the biggest problems, in my opinion, is the way that we do OER systems, and especially in the Intel world, and especially especially, I guess, in the the intel doing intel and elite units is this forced distribution system of OERs with your most qualified, highly qualified, et cetera. So if you want to get promoted, you want to make rank, you want to be competitive, you have to have a string of mostly qualified, you have to be the best of the best, but only one third of the people in that rating chain can or that senior raiders profile can get that. So if you're in an elite unit where everyone's great and they'd be great compared to everybody else, someone's going to get shafted with those highly qualified, with those kind of average block checks. Yeah. And unfortunately, no matter what the verbiage says, because we're at a huge bureaucracy, it's data-driven. So anything that has a number associated with it is going to be valued more. So that's that's bad, in my opinion. And I, I was very mm-hmm. lucky. I was in the I was a, a plank holder in JSOC's Intel Brigade, and my brigade commander was an Intel officer. So number one, he knew what I was doing. And number two... Uh, because we were from the same tribe he was able to take care of me but if i'd have been down the street at the compound down the street supporting those guys it, it wouldn't have been the case because they would have taken care of of the people who you know who who are, are part of their tribe or the, on the operators so yeah it's and that is
0: that that's the capriciousness of just you know your one's military career right you, you better have the right people looking out for you when the time comes to write the oers and ncoers and um it's it's it kind of seems capricious how quickly something can be derailed if you have the wrong people running your life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's so it, it, it while reconciling the the officer side with the enlisted side, uh, we could probably do a whole episode just on that and on the differences between that without even regard to MOS and MI specifically. Um, but I want to look at, at one aspect that you and I have mentioned or I've mentioned before when we've discussed this, because um, I was reading, I think I mentioned on a previous episode, I was reading that book about the Chinese Secret Service and that the Chinese character for intelligence correlates to self-education, which for some reason, I I, I'm, I wonder if that sounds a lot more banal than I mean it to be. But to me, it, it seemed profound. I was like, yeah, self-education. Yeah, that's – That's intelligence. And it goes to, I think, one of the – in my opinion and in in my specific lane of intelligence, uh, one of the cardinal rules was own the street. And I think that's a great tenant of intelligence in general. I think it's really hard um, to be tunnel visioned. I think it limits so many possibilities and you end up getting blindsided by things. And there's a time for tunnel vision, I think, especially when you're supporting uh, highly kinetic activity. But I I do think the idea of an intelligence – the the intelligence principle of owning the street is a valuable one. And I think that correlates with the idea of self-education very well that you did – in order to own the street and there was – I'm going to crib this from a book I read about uh, Mogadishu um, in the early aughts when the Ugandans were taking over Mogadishu as part of the African Union soldiers – Um, moving through Mogadishu and the writer of this book, James Ferguson, I'll link to it in the show notes. He's a Brit reporter and he was interviewing a Ugandan general. And he said, how, how is it for you guys um, integrating with the Somalis in order to take back Mogadishu and push Al-Shabaab out of the city? And, uh, and they were talking about the difficulties and the Ugandan general said, well, in order to defeat this enemy, I have to understand this enemy. And he's like, and to understand Anyone, you have to do three things. You have to eat the food, you have to speak the language, and you have to fuck the women. And I thought that was an incredibly articulate African answer. <laughs> when you've spent a lot of time in Africa, that seems like that's a very, uh, that, that, I believe that response um, was probably taken verbatim. But I think it gets at a core principle, which is that principle of self education that if you're going to own the street, there, there has to be a degree of, and for, it's a, it's a, Terrible phrase because it makes it sound like you're going rogue, but there has to be a, 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 an aspect of going native, of understanding that culture to the point that you can under, understand when you're being lied to, understand when something's happening that shouldn't be happening, and really be able to develop the picture and flesh out the environment. This is my perspective from a, a very boots on ground level and from, again, my little keyhole. How does all that strike you, though, Charlie?
1: So I was laughing while you were talking about that. That is a very, very African uh, phrase. Uh, And while I don't believe I saw that exact verbiage in any of the officer training manuals that I've experienced in my career, I think there's a lot of truth in that, probably. And one of the other things I was thinking about when you were talking, Chris, is as intel professionals, we tend on know, focusing on knowing the enemy. In fact, the motto of the 319th at my battalion down at Fort Bragg is host Cogere," which is to know the enemy. And I think that that, of course, is important for us. But you can't forget what what Sun Tzu also told us is you got to know yourself as well. So I think that we have to stress that first, and especially in the lower ranks, know your unit, know yourself, know what you're supposed to be doing before you go worrying about whatever, whatever else is going on in the world. And I think that goes back to something that you and I talked about before as well with Intel people trying to do Intel jobs in these units. Something that I saw, especially when I was with 5th Group, was a lot of the Intel folks didn't want to do Intel work. They wanted to do ops stuff. Mm. They didn't mm-hmm. want to go to language lab. They didn't want to sit behind the computer and do SIGINT analysis or link diagrams and things like that. They wanted to go shoot and scoot. But that's not, number one... That's not what we do. And number two, that's not what they need us for. So I think if we concentrate on knowing ourselves and getting good at intel work, then the ops guys will respect us more and we'll be able to contribute better to the fight.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I will tell you, in in my experience, I've heard the critique. I'm sure you've heard the critique of special forces um, during the GWAT, during the Global War on Terror. Um, that they had become almost glorified ranger battalions because they were so used to kicking indoors and engaging in um, direct action, as opposed to the kind of jungle diplomat uh, of legend of Vietnam of the Vietnam era and all that. And I noticed that there was, uh, without commenting, you know, if that's true or not, uh, to every, in every unit, I did see a fair bit of that. And I noticed that um, for an intelligence person. There was an awful lot of room to develop the intelligence picture and to really be value added to an ODA because um, there was an emphasis on uh, the kinetic and that did leave open doors for uh, rapport building and uh, relationships to develop um, with the indigenous folks and uh, you know kind of make for a more secure environment. Are those two things mutually exclusive – charlie or is there a role for an intelligence person to go look i'll be your eyes and ears and i'm gonna you know be that that kind of satellite around an oda to kind of help you fill out the picture while you guys are focused on the kinetic action that you got to be taking
1: yeah i think at the end of the day that we as intel professionals need to do whatever whatever ops needs us to do need me to to stir poop uh to, to burn the burn the human waste out there i'll do that if you need me to translate for you. I'll do that. If you need whatever you need me to do, but it's also our job to let them know how we can be most effective to them. And when I was, I was the group in my detachment commander in fifth group and later the support company commander. So, and my first deployment was with fifth group to Iraq in 2003, 2004 ish. And I saw a lot of good things, a lot of not so good things. One of the things that I saw that I thought was really good was my uh, special operation team Alpha Sa- Sa- A's, I think there were ninety eight golf MOS back back then. their language abilities made them extraordinarily valuable to the SF guys so the SF guys they can speak Arabic, but they only have to speak it at a zero plus zero plus level to be yeah. proficient. They got a ton of other things they need to concentrate on that's not their main job. However my sauad As that's their gig so they're three three threes in Arabic. Or whatever else you know, they're trying to support. So, and especially with that direction finding and the signals intelligence equipment that they can carry with them or put in their vehicle, that's extremely useful to those ODAs as they're going out there, and not just during door kicking, during yeah. trying to do village stabilization operations or whatever else they're doing for an internal defense. So, I saw a lot of that. That was that was really well done. But also in special forces, in 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 my group, in the group in the time that I was there. It was hard to get them to trust us to do our jobs outside the wire. So I, when we were at the group headquarters there at, at Balad, it was hard to convince the SF guys to let my humaners and my counterintelligence guys go outside the wire to do CI and human things, very basic things. We got shot at with mortars and rockets very regularly in the early days. And so what do you do? You can, you can either concentrate on reacting to it or you can try to get proactive. So it was hard for us to convince our own unit to let us go outside the wire because we didn't wear a green hat. Yeah. And if you compare that to my experiences in the 160th and a JSOC, very different experiences for a number of reasons, not the least of which is I actually had to try out to be in the 160th and JSOC and like fifth group, which needs needs the army gig for the support side. Um, JSOC is an Intel driven organization. Like we talked about before, they established a brigade and a supportive organization while I was there. 160th, uh, everybody's a night stalker because I had to go through Green Platoon. I had to get right. assessed, everything else. And Fifth Group just wasn't like that. So, for a number of different reasons, while I love Fifth Group and they were very good to me, I think that other soft organizations model. Intel support better than special forces does. And part of that too is probably cultural because they've got that, that 18 series, 18 Fox on their team. They think they don't need us as much.
0: Sure. So, and the ASOTs. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I, I keep, I just stopped myself because I realized I hope folks have, some idea of what we're talking about because the acronyms do come fast and loose when we start <laughs> talking shop about MI. Um, I will try to link to as much as I can in the show notes uh, when I listen back to this. So if you guys are feeling a little bit lost or you know everything sounds 90% there, but there's a 10% that you're missing, check the show notes. I'll try to spell out most of these acronyms and uh, make sure everybody is able to follow what we're talking about. So, Charlie, as an officer, what quality did you value most in your folks? What was the number one trait, if you had to identify it, that you wanted in your MI soldiers?
1: It's character. And that's not just MI soldiers. That's any soldier I've ever led. Uh, Infantry, MI, support site, whatever. And what I mean by characters, I mean I got to be able to trust people to do the right thing even when I'm not there. So if you've got good character, I can trust you to deal with detainees appropriately. I can trust you to handle sensitive SIGINT. I can trust you to do your job. If you don't have good character and it gets exposed, it will limit our ability to conduct the, the intel operations we need to do in support of the mission. For example, if we abuse detainees, Set aside the, the legal and ethical aspects of it, someone's going to take our, away our ability to deal with det- detainees, which, as you know, is huge. Same thing with technical exploitation. Same t- thing with the guys who do hacking, et cetera, et cetera. So it's got to be character. So you get character first, and then I need an ability to work hard. In in the task force in particular, there were no days off. We weren't there as long as as anybody else. We were were very short Mm -hmm. missions, but there was no time off. There was no going to the pajama jammy jam or salsa night or whatever it was that was right outside our wire. So those two things are the most important. And then being smart, even for an Intel guy, is kind of a distant third to me. If I can trust you and you can work hard, I can work with that. If you're smart on top of it, then that's kind of, that's gravy. So let me walk through each of
0: those because each of, and I'm going to give a cynical interpretation of each one and my uh, agreement with each one. I, I, the bottom line is I think that strikes me as incredibly accurate and exactly what one would need. There, Let me start with the working hard first. The first thing that comes to mind when I hear how valuable working hard is is um, risk aversion versus risk management. There were mm. many people that I saw that just were terrified of the job. They were terrified of the implications. They were terrified about being wrong. I think in my experience, a lot of the intelligence uh, community, by its nature, not by a character flaw, not because they were bad people, just by design, intelligence and the due diligence we have to do with our intelligence means that at a certain level, it becomes a community of second guessers. And as a result, that in a personality-based business where you are doing nothing but subjecting yourself to second-guessers and armchair quarterbacks, um, which is has its value, but nonetheless, there becomes a certain sickness. And I'm sounding really cynical, and maybe I am to some degree. Let me stipulate. I loved the work, and I met a lot of good folks. I met a lot of people that I have less use for uh, than I would have liked. And I think where it it came down was that sense of risk aversion where um, there were certain people that understood that the personality, the topography of navigating all the different personalities might be detrimental to their careers and decided to wave the white flag and just lie low. And there were those that said, look, the job has to be done and you push forward no matter what because we're here and we're not taking days off and we're getting after it. And um, I'm not disagreeing with you in mm-hmm. any way that I see right now. I'm really just agreeing about the hard work part. But talk to me about that. Does any of that strike you? As did you see that? Can you relate to any of what I just said?
1: Yeah, 100. So I've I've been in a long time, as as I mentioned earlier. I've seen very good leaders and seen very bad leaders of all branches. But of course, I spent most of my time in Intel, so that's where I'm going to focus my answer to this. So. Now that I think about it, the majority of the time where I've had major issues with peers or, or superior officers, other leaders, is because they were so risk averse. One of the reasons I, I was so successful in my later career was because I was with commanders who accepted risk, not gambles, but risks, right. In, right. in order to get the mission done. And more importantly, if we got it wrong, but if we got it wrong for the right reasons, it wasn't a death sentence for one's career. Because there were plenty of times in the task force where we did not get the analysis correct. And we always tried to do an AAR after to try to see how we can do better next time. But you, in this environment, you've got to make the best decision and offer the best advice you can in the quickest manner possible. And when that happens, sometimes you're going to get it wrong. And fortunately for us in the task force, we had leaders who were willing to accept that risk. And when you were mentioning in the intel community about the the inherent Risk to career and things like that, and risk aversion in our community. I absolutely saw that as well. There was one very well-known organization that worked with our task force who was who was renowned for not sharing information with us. And and mm-hmm. we'll go into specific stories uh, maybe at a later date. But for our task force commander, I'm thinking General McChrystal specifically, but Admiral McCraven was the same way, and is and their subordinate generals as well, General Votel, uh, The risk of not sharing was greater than the risk of sharing. So it was a very much a share, 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 share till it hurts information uh, within the boundaries, of course, of of what we're allowed to do in the Intel community. Share that information, don't hoard it, because that makes us all better. And you never know who's going to connect the dots for you outside your organization. And if you share information with them, it, it could be better in the long run. So I particularly appreciated that acceptance of risk in that regard.
0: I want to get into the what you said about character, but before I go there, just because we're talking about sharing information, it's probably a good time to talk about the difference between military intelligence and civilian intelligence. And obviously when we're talking about that, we're talking about the vast 17 agency alphabet soup um, of civilian intelligence organizations from CIA to NSA, et cetera, et cetera. So in your experience, Charlie, um, How does military intelligence stack up as far as um, information sharing, as far as uh, that risk aversion, um, and as far as that uh, environment that you want to work in and that does enable good intelligence collection and analysis and dissemination?
1: Yeah, the first thing is personalities. And we can say all day systems are what drive it, but you and I both know it's personalities. So one of the things that the task force did that I thought was brilliant was they would put LNOs everywhere. And I'm not talking your standard LNO like you want someone to get – you You can't fire them, but you don't want them to mess anything up, so you make them – no, no, uh-uh. If you got picked to be an LNO from the task force to a specific organization, you talked with the authority of the commanding officer. And that we're talking majors, talking with the, the authority of a three-star general of the National yeah. Mission Force. And that was one thing they did that I thought was brilliant. And they took LNO's from other places. And of course, these other organizations didn't want to get embarrassed by sending some dirtbag to work with us. So that, that went really well. So I think that the personality is key for it. And yeah, I think I think we are up to 17, 18, I think if you count the the director. Um, right, l- right. All those organizations, I think the majority of them are military organizations. If you just did the math, the majority of them, I think it's maybe a simple majority like 10, are military. So the bulk of the intel community inside the United States is military intelligence, even though it might be like uh, uh, an organization most folks think of as a civilian organization like the DIA. Right. So, in in my experience, and I, and I haven't worked closely with every organization because there's 17 of them and they didn't all directly support us all the time, the closer that they were to the boots on the ground, the more cooperative they were. The, the further elevated they were, the least cooperative they were. And the most risk-averse people, Chris, in my experience, were middle management. Because if you're at the bottom, you just want to get things done. You're not really thinking about your career. If you're at the top, you've made it. But if you're in the middle management, that's risky. If you work with these guys and something goes wrong, then you won't get promoted. So the, the middle management further away from the battlefield and the civilian organizations were very, very difficult to work through. It's frustrating.
0: Yeah. And it's also something to think about the hierarchy of the intelligence community. And I think when you're in the military intelligence world, you're really working on two hierarchies. You have the military hierarchy and your rank and your organization there. And then you have your hierarchy in the intelligence world. And how did that strike you, Charlie? Obviously, you were working with tier one units uh, in often. So you probably stacked up on a peer-to-peer level and were treated as a peer from a lot of civilian agencies where other MI folks might not be, Right.
1: So in some degrees, yes. And that, that's a very interesting dynamic as well. And for anyone who's in the Intel community just starting off or thinking about it, I think that the the best thing you can do for yourself is just accept who you who you are and what you do. So I I was in these organizations. I like to think I was good at my job. But at the end of the day, I'm never going to be as cool as a, as a Delta Force door kicker or SEAL or SF or Rangers or anybody else. And I didn't try to be. So I was very comfortable with that. And I think that... Helped me deal with these different organizations, these very elite collectors and organizations on military and civilian. Because I was comfortable with who I am, I know that I'm I'm just a very small wheel and a very big cog. I think what I'm doing is important, but I'm realistic about it. I'm not jealous of those guys. I don't want to do that. It looks dangerous going out three, four times a night shooting Al Qaeda in the face, and I'm quite happy to, to do what I can to support that organization. So I think if we're comfortable in our roles, then that gives us a lot of mental, um, ability to deal with these different organizations. And that confidence translates into, into better interactions with these organizations. So for example, if I'm dealing with the CIA and I know this guy's a a chief of station or a deputy chief of station, I realize that in terms of Intel hierarchy, they're, they're much higher than me. End of the day though, there's, there's still a person just like me and we're all trying to get the job done. So you walk in with the confidence that's born of, of knowing yourself, knowing your job, knowing where you are in the hierarchy, not being jealous, not being intimidated. And most importantly, not being arrogant, then that goes a long way into doing all these relationships that we need to be successful.
0: I think there's no two ways about it. In a personality-based business, one of your best weapons is your ability to walk in your own skin and present in a room uh, accurately, exactly who you are, without false artifice, without uh, and, and while still representing yourself well. That strikes me as is incredibly valuable. And in my experience, that that I do think is is an incredibly powerful weapon. Just that that comfort with yourself, because. Uh, and it's strange. Did you find that? I'm going to ask you because I was about to give my opinion, but I want to hear what you think. Did you find that to be relatively rare in, yeah. in not in the MI community I, and in general and in the military? Yeah, I did as well. I did yeah, as well. There's,
1: there's a lot of butt sniffing that goes on in the military. And one of the things that helped me out as an intel guy was the task force's practice of not wearing patches. Yeah. So. I was there. I, I wasn't a guy that, that wore civilian clothes. I, I felt in my role that I didn't need to. And I, I thought it was kind of silly. I'm six foot five and white. I was never going to blend in even on the fob. So I just wore my uniform, but all I wore on it was, was what I had to, which was my rank in us army, my name, um, But the fact that I wasn't wearing patches when I went to go deal with these elite units or when I went to go deal with even conventional units, not wearing patches, first of all, sexy. So, you know that, you know, something sexy is going on, but also they don't see that I don't have a special forces tab. They don't see that I'm not Ranger qualified. They don't see et cetera, et cetera. So they just they're just left wondering. And I never try to lead anybody on. I mean, I'm an intelligence officer. I'm proud of that. I'm not trying to be anything else, but that helps also when you walk in the room and you're different than everybody else dealing with the conventional units, you're different. And then when, when you're in a conventional unit and they judge you by the, the, the bling you wear in your uniform and you don't have any, but they know you're part of this elite unit, then I think all that helps as well.
0: Yeah. Kind of going back to what we talked about last week with, you know, are all veterans equal? We talked about how important that fruit salad on the uniform can be right. in military circles, right? Um, so, I want to go back to the character piece that you talked about. So, th- I think there is a very black and white way to look at at character, especially in the MI community, oh. and that's appropriate. Um, you want people that are moral. You want people that are ethical. I think, though, and th- I'm I'm trying to get into a more interesting. Cul-de-sac of, of a nuance here with this. <laughs> so what I what I'm thinking of is certain guys that I knew who. Well, let me let me let me juxtapose who they were versus who they were not in the in the intelligence community writ large. And I'm, I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school. This has been uh, written about a lot. Uh, you know, there's a strong Mormon population. Mormons uh, are you you tend to find a lot of them both in civilian and military intelligence communities. For a lot of reasons. Um, for one, they have language skills because they go on mission and they are used to dealing with foreigners in their country and speaking the languages very well. And then, of course, there seems to be a very high moral code in the Mormon Church. So generally, the behavior is pretty good, and the the uh, detrimental traits that uh, you might worry about that would come up in a polygraph or come up on a background screening tend not to pop for those kind of folks. The flip side, of course, with that is that not always, but often with those kind of folks, you're looking at a certain physical type. And Charlie, you talked about yourself, you know, being tall and white. And certainly for uh, your average Mormon, and for that matter, your your average military intelligence soldier, at least in my experience, uh, there was they they look like you know a GI Joe archetype, and that is somebody that sticks out in a crowd. In my experience, a lot of them were were um, you know this was not always, but in many respects, this was their first job out of high school um, on the enlisted side, and. Uh, what I always thought was interesting was how reserves and guardsmen, in my experience, had more success, especially on the collection side, because they had more life experience and they had other jobs and they were used to interacting with people in other ways. And they were guys who, if I can make kind of a couple of leaps in assumptions about their backgrounds, I don't think would grade out as well on a if you had to translate character to an Excel spreadsheet and look at exactly you know all the right moves they had made, had they hit all the right wickets Now these were probably guys that I'm sure had been late making a couple of payments on their bills you know uh, that might have been through a few divorces and might have had you know uh, some some issues uh, personally uh, in the past. But because of the age and because of their know-how, their collection ability was significantly, better in my experience that I saw than your, um, you know, 18 year old who grades out great on character only because they don't have a long track record or your person that really has been, and this is a a detrimental phrase, but I'll use it a goody two shoes, um, who can sail through a poly very easily, but may not be the collector that you need to, um, to run a source in a certain kind of situation. Am I being too overly nuanced with this or is there any validity to what I'm talking about, Charlie,
1: in your eyes? First of all, I love working with the Guard and Reserves for the reasons that you identified. I think that the active force has some enormous advantages in some regards over Guards and Reserves, but in the intel community and just on a deployment in general, Those individuals have so many talents. They can do construction. They can program computers. They were cops. They were doing whatever. They're doing so many other things and the experiences of living outside the bubble of a very insular military community. And most of them are older as well. So I love working with Guard and Reserves. We had a number of guardsmen and reservists in the task force that were helping us out. And I'm thinking particularly in the interrogation side mm-hmm. they were out there doing that and getting after it. So I think that that was very helpful as well, especially if you compare uh, a specialist an E4 in the guard to a specialist in the army, the, the guardsmen are probably much older, much more experienced. So apples to apples comparison, a lot of times the guardsmen can can do better on that. In terms of character, I think that character is a broad term of course, the the integrity aspect of character and the reliability of aspect is more important to me. I, I don't care if they're divorced. I don't care that they smoke pot in high school. I, I've never been divorced, never smoked pot, but I don't think that makes me better than anybody else, and I don't look down on anybody else for those types of things. What I will hold someone accountable for, though, is lying to me or doing something outside the the norms of the expectations that are very clear inside the army and in, in what we do in interrogation, for example. Then that that's where we're going to have to draw the line. Sure. So, um, and, and things like profanity and things like that, I don't care about that. I don't, I don't think it really impacts the job, but sexual harassment does and silly little things that detract from the job do. So let's stomp that out and concentrate on doing the job and, and everybody will be better off.
0: Absolutely. Um, I will, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're doing the same thing, Charlie. I'm constantly, you know, thinking about. What I want to say, and if I can get away saying it, um, and so let let me um, let me assess this. I think I think I can say this without uh, damning anyone, but I know, especially in semi-permissive environments, um, and for that matter, in non-permissive environments as well. But but uh, among U.S. soldiers, but uh, certainly in semi-permissive environments, the temptation for misconduct is high and uh and it is a bit of a tell if somebody is up to shenanigans um personally on a deployment in a semi-permissive environment uh even if you haven't noticed it impacting their professional work or their professional side um you you do start to wonder and yeah. and that does develop a, a trust issue and i think um there are there there is a lot of that and i uh i'm i'm going to pull my punches on this but yeah there and that that those are significant concerns and i it, it's funny cuz that um it it i do think there's a uh well to go back to our ugandan general that that he talked about right eat the food speak the language fuck the women well it's like well Two out of three ain't bad. I mean, you know, obviously for a, a military intelligence soldier, you can do two of the three of those. Um, and, and the, the third has an awful lot of complications and, and, uh, contingencies that come with it if that's the path you're trying to go down. So, um, so yeah, I, I think there's, you know, character, there's no two ways about it. I do think, so this is an article I read and I'm going to post this in the show notes if I can find it. I read it several years ago from a CIA, retired CIA ops officer who wrote about um, how counterintelligence is killing the CIA. And what he specifically meant was he said, we're hiring um, goody two shoes. You have to be so pure to get through uh, the farm or to even qualify to get to the farm and then to go through the the farm the training that the CIA um, ops officers go through. They said uh, we we we're not churning out street ready ops officers, and I thought that was an interesting critique. I have no insight in that or opinion. Uh, that was not my community, and I, I I really couldn't shed any light on that. But I thought it was an interesting insight when he compared it, at least anecdotally, with his kind of more rollicking time, I think in the seventies and eighties, maybe early nineties. And he said, you know, there he's like, we were a bit more libertine about it because we understood that you're going to have to get some dirt under your fingernails. If you really want the, the human based collection, a human intelligence based collection that that we're trying to get. And it's very hard. And, and, and and we have to, um, he's like, there need to be allowances for that. And obviously you don't want to be penetrated phrasing, um, with, uh, you know, by a foreign intelligence service, by compromising yourself or doing something that allows you to get blackmailed. But at the same time, um, you need to be able to toe that line and, and, and understand where that line is. What do you think about that? What's your take?
1: Yeah. So like you, that, that wasn't my world. I never went to the farm. I did some equivalent courses inside the military realm. But my first response to that is I think one of the reasons they they swung to that side of the pendulum was because there were so many people who thought they could do whatever they wanted in the CIA. If you look at the history of the CIA, they had some major penetrations on the on the counterintelligence side and if you look at what they were doing that's Pretty big red flags that were going up, but people were ignoring them because that's just Bob or that's just the way we do business. So that would be my first response to that, um, without having delved into it. Sure. So I think there's a lot we can tolerate, but I think character and trust and integrity do drive it at the end of the day. And I think you and I'm okay with people on the CI side being a, a, little, a little more permanent proper. That's what we need them for. The humaners are where you need to get dirty. And that's where you need to have the a little more moral ambi- ambiguity because that's where you're dealing with the dirt bags and guys that do have blood on their hands and things like that because those are the people that have the Im- information that we need. So you've got to deal with it more on the human side. I think if I had to if I had to pick and I couldn't I couldn't uh, just make level everything out and make everything equal. I'd want a goody two shoes on the CI side. I want someone who's got attention to detail. I want someone who knows the rules. I want someone who's ready to get after it and i'd be willing to to have a little more gray area with my humaners. i
0: agree um but my my personal bias obviously uh, on the ci side of the house is simply uh in the semi permissive environment humaners can't get out the door and they end up just being your reports officers and CI are yeah. the guys that do the human mission, which <laughs> which is a m- lot more fun for the CI folks, which is probably why I like that aspect a lot more than the non permissive side where I had to properly do CI anyway. Um, <laughs> so, but yes, you're absolutely right. So um, I'm gonna kind of broaden the aperture a little bit. Um, what I let me, let me think exactly which way I want to go with this. Well, let me flip this. What is the worst trait? What is the trait that drives you apeshit that you're like, I can't deal with this? I I think we can probably stipulate somebody with bad character or somebody that's lazy um, since that would be the opposites of what we've talked about so far. Is there another trait though that really that you're like, hey, that's poison to have around?
1: Yeah, selfishness, trying to make yourself the center of attention. And also, I just want to reiterate how it bothers me about Intel folks trying to be ops folks and concentrating on that instead of doing the Intel mission and support ops. At the end of the day, we're the supporting element. We're not the supported element. In the vast majority of cases, sometimes Intel is the mission, but that the, the selfishness and not being a team player and then just not wanting to do the Intel job. And I've been fortunate in my career, the last couple of operational assignments where I I had hiring and, and firing authority especially with the augmentees. So if they were coming through and I even got a whiff of any of that, you're gone next because there's plenty more that want to come in and do this. And I didn't have to assume the risk on, on those types of people. But fortunately there were few in, in, in far between. And I I've generally been impressed with the quality of MI soldiers in conventional or unconventional. My first command in Korea, second infantry division in 2000, it, they're all Korean linguists. I can't speak Korean. So these guys, they had this talent that I didn't have and this ability and this enthusiasm and this love of life, and they were good soldiers too. They weren't special operations soldiers, and they didn't need to be. They were there doing a mission, and they were good at it, and they were generous, and they were kind, and they had good character, and that's one of the reasons I love those guys too.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit um, because we're kind of giving them short shrift. What, in your opinion, is the biggest difference between your conventional intelligence folks and your soft intelligence folks?
1: So to be honest, there's not a lot of difference. Yeah. There's not at the end of the day. So what I've heard a lot of operators say, it's, it's not me that's special, it's the mission. It's the mission that's special. It's the unit that's special. So, for, and uh, the 160th pilots in particular w- would tell me this all the time. They said, if you take a, holly, a, ho- a good pilot in the, in the 101st Airborne Division and you put them in this MH-47 that I'm flying right now and you give them the crew that's supporting me, they would be just as good as i am. Now i don't believe it for, for a second because i flew with the 101st, i flew with the 160th, 160th <laughs> pilots are better. But that's their attitude.
0: Right. And i right. and
1: there is some truth to that. So if you if you took one of my 98 golfs in the 102 MI battalion delta company in, in 2000 and you put them in fifth group there's no difference because there's no selection or training process. They're absolutely the same. They could do that Sade gig just as well as anybody else could. If you took them and put them in 160th or especially JSOC, there might be a difference because we were able to screen those guys and get them in. So almost all of us start off in conventional units. So very few people get to walk on to a special operations unit right out the gate. It does happen from time to time. So eventually, I mean, it's just like having having a built Jeep. They all start stock, right? So you look at this badass Jeep going down the road, it started off stock. So the most elite Intel support guy in the most elite organizations start off in a conventional unit. So at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot of difference other than experience, other than the people they work with, the mission, and the resources they've got, Chris.
0: Yeah. So I'll I'll push back against that a little bit or, or bounce this off and see what you think. So what, what comes to my mind if I'm told that I'm attached to a conventional unit versus a soft unit is and again from my narrow little keyhole what what <laughs> the the battles i see myself having to fight is we're going to get into pissing contests about rank there's going to be a rank consciousness there's going to be a very army white walls you know uh left and right very well defined left and right limits and there's going to be um in my experience there's going to be a, a very a, a co- very conventionally a conventional army point of view about carrots and sticks that um, we will hold paperwork we know what the rules are we're we are very high bound by that versus in a soft unit because usually there's not you know I, there there's a debt or a mico you know, you're operating in onesies, twosies, and, and it's kind of a bit more diversified. It's big boy rules, and you kind of make your own interpersonal connections with whatever team or whatever units you're supporting. And, uh, you know, nobody's coming down and, and uh, trying to get on you for, uh, I don't know, um, administrative paperwork related to your army. You know, service or, or, or kind of conventional army tasks as opposed to purely mission focused tasks. Um, I noticed, for, and this is again, was my own experience. Um, so I don't know how true this is for others or for you, but for me, I knew I could never go wrong in a soft environment if all I was focused on was the mission. Um, whereas when I was with conventional folks, I was acutely aware there were a whole lot of other concerns besides the mission. There was because there had to be things about um, your rank, your uh, your career, your um, your PT test, you know, things like that. And for me, as someone that was just deploying nonstop, I uh, that was incredibly irking to me because I was like, "We're on a deployment. This isn't what I want to be thinking about." And I think this is a waste of time. Um, that might just be a character flaw for me but i don't know how does that strike you does that
1: now do i relate I to that complete complete agreement and this is one of the things I, I talk to my cadets here about as well and i the advice i give them is get in the most elite unit you can as soon as you can and stay there as long as you can <laughs> there, there's there's and they their most elite unit they can get in at the time might be down at fort Polk it might be 10th mountain it might be the 82nd sure but Keep working that and get there as soon as you can. Stay there as long as you can and do the best you can while you're there. Because there's a lot of benefit just being around good people. I've been in some not great units before, but if I was in good – around good people, we didn't have resources, whatever. That's okay because the people are what matters. Um, And you mentioned big boy rules. That was a thing in in my units as well. But for me, big boy rules – and people get confused about this – it doesn't mean there aren't any rules. It means you know what the rules are. We trust you to follow them. And if you don't follow them, you accept the consequences for your actions. So that was that's the way I explained big board rules to my students here. And the last thing that I thought of when you were talking, Chris, is one of the things that I had my students study when I headed up the officership program here was this missive uh, by Dr. Wong called Lying to Ourselves. And it was a deeply researched, very damning document about how officers in the army lack integrity in reporting certain things. So we talked about how important character is, we talked mm-hmm. about how important integrity and things like that are. But meanwhile, everyone you know is lying about their their training, their online training. They put the smartest kid mm-hmm. in the squad mm-hmm. on there to take the test for everybody, et mm-hmm. cetera, et cetera. And that was one of the things that we did a good job of shielding people from in the task force was a lot of this minutia because they're in a ter- totally different administrative tracking, et cetera, et cetera. And the Army's doing better about reducing some of that. I think a chief of staff one or two ago started peeling away these these BS requirements that no one was really doing anyway. And I think that has helped us try to focus on the mission, which is what you were referring to, avoid the distractions, stay focused on on what we're there supposed to be doing. And I think that makes it a better unit and a better uh, chance that we get the job done.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's it's interesting. That's a whole another phase that brought back a whole lot of scary memories about online training. So I I'm, I'm going <laughs> to veer from that before I go down a rabbit hole. Um, last words on this for today, Charlie. Uh, regrets in the MI field. Mm. I mean, you've obviously dodged your fair share of landmines, um, uh, f- literally and figuratively, in in, in the career but uh if you had to go back and do it all over what do you tell second lieutenant uh or, or, or captain faint or whenever it was you you tra- you transferred to mi what would you do differently in the mi field
1: you know a lot of people say they don't have any regrets I do I have I have many I, I've learned from many mistakes I, I continue to make mistakes now I, I'm generally proud of what I've done I made the tough call even when it wasn't popular even when it 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 adversely affected me personally, um, but I wasn't always kind and I wasn't always good. And I didn't work as hard in retrospect as I think I could have to, to take care of my people. Um, I I I think I did okay, but I, in retrospect and seeing it, here at West Point, there's so many great leaders and seeing the way that uh, my current and former bosses here take care of people and and really get into it in, in ways that I just didn't I like to think if I had to do it over again, I'd be more like them. And that's not just in the intel community. That's, that's for anybody. So uh, just be kind to your people, hold them accountable, but you can do that in a a kind way, be professional, focus on the mission while taking care of the troops and everything else tends to take care of itself. I
0: think there's a a special, um, aspect of that when it comes to MI. And we talk about taking care of the troops, because I think as we laid out, there are so many career pitfalls and so many personality-based pitfalls that can beset an MI professional, um, to, to alleviate some of that stress and some of that risk aversion requires taking care of your people. Because I think if you know, if you realize that the knives are out and everybody's gunning for each other, um, the, the toxicity and the corruption of leadership uh, then then stresses everybody out and you have not just a, a poorly performed mission, but you, will, you also have people that are not being led correctly and are going to make the wrong choices. Um, I'm trying to – again, I'm thinking on two tracks here because I'm trying to pull my punches a little bit, but I'm thinking in one case of bad behavior that I saw that only happened because – The soldiers felt that they could not go to their leadership because they would be dinged career-wise for presenting a certain problem set. So as a result, they opted to deal with the problem set in a way that did not have the oversight it needed. And that's you know just a second order effect of, of a toxic leader that's not looking out for his troops enough. And I think MI, because again you're not dealing with widgets and you're dealing with really with personalities. Um, I think it it lends itself to that degree, to that specific type of toxicity. And um, and that's why the troops need to be taken care of and they need to know, like you said before about your um, folks at JSOC, that they could. Uh, They could manage risk. They could take on risk and understand that, you know, being aggressive and getting after it didn't need to be a career ending decision, even if you made the wrong choice, as long as it was done within a certain permissible, um, you know, amount. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. And Chris, I worry that we're going back to that. So I joined the army in the mid nineties in the battle days where we didn't have any money. We didn't have any people and it was zero tolerance for any type of failure. And then when the the wars started kicking off, we we really kind of got away from that—the the painting rocks, going to the field for thirty days at a time, stuff, uh, fifty mile foot marches or whatever we used to do in the infantry—we didn't do that anymore. But now that the wars are winding down and we you know, left Afghanistan literally in the middle of the night, I think we're going to get back to that garrison mentality, and I think that's bad. The the garrison mentality of zero defects. I think in, in our operation and the way we do business, if we want the type of leaders that will really help defeat the, fu- the, the threats of the future, you got to let them fail. You can't, within certain parameters, like you said, you can't let every little thing be the difference between making rank or not or staying in the army or not. And unfortunately, as we alluded to before with the, the, the OER system, The way it is right now one little mistake even at a junior level could be the snowball effect that derails a great leader and either they don't get the positions or the rank they should or they leave the force which is probably what's going to happen
0: yeah yeah i couldn't agree more i hated garrison work to the point i would i would and did rather deploy for 12 months at a time if possible rather than spend 10 minutes in garrison right Um, i couldn't agree more um Charlie, uh this is a conversation that needs to be continued. We'll we'll come back and obviously we're we I know we've talked to people in the past and we have people on the docket in the future that would be able to probably dive way deeper higher into a discussion about intelligence. So we'll keep having this and we'll we'll do this as a multi part series over time because uh that was fun. And I think we dodged all the uh I think I think we we made all the tear lines make sense. We 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 stayed out of <laughs> trouble. So I think that was good. Um so now tell me about what's going on in second mission and Black Rifle Coffee has something coming up too, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm not gonna try to steal their thunder, so I'm just gonna be deliberately vague for our audience. But they the Black Rifle Coffee Company is pairing up with a number of big names and the the veteran community space, and they're putting together a workshop for veteran writers it probably be out in Texas cuz they got a ranch out there probably be in November because that's the dates they're looking at right now but uh I'm this is something that we we all tried to do last year two years actually because but we had to cancel cuz of covid and Black Rifle Coffee is a coffee company of course they're all vets their their leadership is vets and they care a lot about the veteran community so they're going to put a shindig together to get a, a bunch of representatives from People who are technically their competitors in the veteran community space to come out to get together and help work together to make things good for the veteran community. So I look forward to coming back on the show in a couple of weeks, Chris, when they get their plans formalized. Well, heck, maybe we can have one of those guys come out and be on the show to talk about it themselves. But we need more of this. The veteran community is a great community, but we've been apart for too long and we need to come together and start making things good for, for our community again.
0: I couldn't agree more as you and I say probably just about every episode we're on but I think I think it's a um I think the number of second and third order effects of veterans writing is has yet to be counted there there are a lot of good effects that can happen from this I think it, that w- when we look at the spaces that need writers whether it's in news whether it's in entertainment I, those are areas that desperately need people with a, an acute understanding of what real world problems look like, and what real world solutions look like, and even if it's just in the entertainment space, I think uh, I, I think that dose of reality is uh, is needed and
1: welcome. Well, along those lines, Chris, are you comfortable talking about what you've got going on with Vet Rep because that's that's very much in line with this conversation we're having? No, right now.
0: No, totally. And you and I can probably talk offline about that too. I because um, I really um, I would love actually Vet Rep to go out there. Uh, to the writers' workshop, right. and um, you know, try to put something together out there for the playwriting angle. Because certainly, uh, this past week, uh, thank you for teeing this up, Charlie. Yeah, this, for the the past week, I put out a uh, notice for playwrights that are veterans or are immediate family members of veterans, and uh, we have great prizes. Uh, the, the awards are, you know, one thousand dollars if you win our ten-minute play competition ten thousand dollars if you win our full-length play competition uh, look up the details um, on Instagram at vet rep theater or on Facebook at vet rep theater Newberg uh, that's with a GH at the end and you can see exactly the details of, of the contest that we're putting out contest goes until December 31st so if you don't know how to write plays plenty of time to go out and learn um, but I would certainly like to uh, yeah talk with you more about getting in on on what black rifle coffee is doing because they are, I think, the most active supporter of veteran writers, and certainly uh, I care a lot about the playwriting aspect of that for reasons having something to do with Original Sin. But I really do <laughs> – I, 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 I think it is an awesome medium, and I think vets will really love it. And I love – they are, veterans are so underrepresented in the theater, and the theater feeds – Film and TV and all the rest in such novel ways that I think it's important to have veterans in the theater. And theater is a naturally subversive medium, which is just awesome because it lets vets really speak their hearts, but in very creative ways. Uh, so I just think there's a lot of cool possibilities. So I would, I would. Um, anyway, we can talk about that offline. But thank you for giving me a chance to plug that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hey, no problem, Chris. And you know, next week we got Aaron Kirk coming on the the long-awaited moment for we've been talking about his book, The Hill, for months now, and it's it's interesting timing. I was talking with Aaron yesterday when we were firming up plans for the show, and you know, we're with his book, his memoir about being a marine in, in Afghanistan and the highs and lows of that. And I, I kind of wonder how he feels about what's going on in Afghanistan right now, after spending part of his youth there and leaving part of his soul behind, as we all do on every deployment. To now see how things ended up, so I hope that's one of the things you get to talk to him about next week, Chris.
0: Yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, my dog has a lot of opinions on it too, as you can hear. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, listen, I, 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 and there is a little part of me. It's funny, you know. I um doing the social media for Vet Rep. I I try not to do anything overtly political but I can't help tweeting stuff about Afghanistan when I see it come up because that that just is I mean that's at the core of every veteran's experience for the last 20 years and that's just um yeah a lot I got a lot of strong feelings as I know you do about Afghanistan so Stuff to be discussed later, and it's pissing off my dogs, as you can hear, so I better get (laughs) off topic. So, uh, Charlie, thanks for being here, man. This was fun. I'm glad we could do this.
1: Me too, brother. Thanks so much.
0: To everyone else, if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe. If you're on iTunes, a five-star review would be awesome. Say whatever you want. Leave us whatever comments you want. We love constructive criticism. If you can attach it to a five-star review, though, that would be great. Uh, I will have show notes for anything that we need to spell out, whether it's an acronym, whether it's a story we referenced or uh, anything like that. Show notes will be available wherever you're listening to this podcast, or if you want to see them on their own dedicated page, you can go to the theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com, or you can look up at Havoc Journal for the accompanying article that I always put out with each one of these episodes, and you'll see the show notes there as well. I'll also have show alibis. For anything I misstated, stuff I wake up at two in the morning and go, why did I say it like that? Or I should have mentioned this, or I should have added this context. Um, I'll put those alibis in there also. That will also apply to Charlie, but generally I'm the only one that brain farts in a way that I need to actually write and cover my own ass after that. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Charlie Faint, and we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos when we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. dogs are losing their minds. I have no idea what just happened. I was like, "Oh God, I got Gray coming over. He's like literally standing just off screen waving. He's been waving his Kindle fire and a bag of chips at me for like the past 15 minutes and I got the dogs right there. I'm like, I I was was so tempted just to stop it and strangle them, but uh, anyway, be that as a bay. Sorry, you're muted again.
1: No, you're good. Um, I I hate when, you know, all all my best content is when I'm muted. It's this terrible. Uh, my someone came to the door and rang the doorbell while we were talking. I heard and that then my dog yeah. went nuts. And I'm like, oh god! And Lola <laughs> just got back from playing tennis, so you know, it's, it's she can't go. You know, get her. Yeah, it's it's interesting.